0: Dear Father, we thank you for your uh, love and kindness and for your trustworthiness uh, that you have demonstrated by your works. We pray that you would help us to understand your word this day, that you would bless our study of scripture, and that we might know you and know you better and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So today we come to the third chapter of the Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith, um, and there are extra handouts on the table over there if anyone needs them. Uh, we, the chapter is on the eternal decree of God, uh, or God's eternal decree. You'll notice in the, if you compare it with the Catechism, it talks about the decrees of God, and the Confession talks about the decree of God. Uh, it's, it's one decree. It's from eternity, but there are many things decreed in it. So you could talk about it in the plural or the singular. Um, I'm going to go ahead, though, and just uh, take it piece by piece. You'll, if you have the outline, you'll notice that there are certain uh, paragraphs that are grouped together. Um, so I'll begin with the first two paragraphs uh, on God's eternal decree. God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass, yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away but rather established. And then the second paragraph, although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. These two paragraphs are joined together because they're speaking, first of all, of God's decree of all things, of all things whatsoever comes to pass. Uh, later paragraphs are going to uh, narrow in on particularly his decrees concerning um, eternal destiny of his creatures, uh, election or foreordination uh to, to life or to death. But before we get there, we first have to recognize that God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass, uh, from the mundane to the glorious, you know, the Uh, flights of the birds and the rising of the sun to the actions of men and angels Uh, from beginning to end he has decreed whatsoever comes to pass and that's the focus of these things we find that even in Ephesians when it's talking about the predestination of the elect unto glory that he does this according uh, that he works all things according to his own will. Um, that this is part of a plan that extends, in fact, to all things, Um, that he has ordained everything before it happens in eternity past, um, everything that happens by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will. Um, It happens as he uh, has ordained it. Um, We can think of several passages. I mentioned Ephesians 1.11, but you can also consider Isaiah 46. Isaiah in the later chapters has several chapters that talk about the sovereignty of God and how he is different than all other pretended gods and rulers. Um, and in chapter 46, verse 10, well, let me back up to verse 9. He says, "'For I am God, and there is no other,' I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Notice, not only does he say, I know what's going to happen, but... Uh, what happens is going to be what I have purposed. You know, my purpose, my plan, my counsel will stand. And it even involves, you know, the bird of prey from the east, which is referring to, um, to Cyrus and the, the uh, rulers of the nations that God would use to bring Israel back to uh, the promised land. So it, not only inanimate objects, but, but free agents as well, uh, that God's counsel and purpose will stand. Um, We can also think of Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, where it is said, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. The the Proverbs use uh, parallel phrases uh, often, and so the plans in the minds of a man is parallel here to the purpose of the Lord. He has his plan. Uh, He has his purposes, uh, and it will stand, regardless of what men might plan uh, or think. Um, And so God has a plan. It's all-encompassing. There's nothing uncertain to him. Uh, He is sovereign over all that he has made. But there are three clarifications here uh, regarding this uh, decree. First of all, God is not the author of sin. James 1 talks about how he does not tempt people to sin and is not tempted by sin, that John says in First John that in him is light and in him is no darkness at all. Uh, he is, sin does not proceed from him. He is not responsible for sin. He is sinless, he is pure, he is righteous, and that's true. Uh, so we have to maintain that in our explanation of all things. Even though, even the sins of men are ordained by his eternal decree uh, that they would happen. Um, And that's related to the next qualification or clarification here. No violence is done to the will of the creatures. Uh, There is still a natural liberty of the will that God gives to mankind. Uh, We'll get to a whole chapter on free will later on in the confession of faith. Uh, But he created men and angels uh, to have a will and to be able to do what they want, but all of that is within God's uh, eternal decree. And of course, one of the great, or one of the uh, tremendous examples of this is in the death of Jesus Christ. Was it wrong for people to put Jesus to death? Yes, it was very wrong. It, you know, they were, they were killing one who was God's son. And he was an innocent and righteous person. So it was wrong for the Jews to deliver him over and for the Romans to execute him. But was that part of God's plan? Yes, it was part of God's plan. Because this was his plan to redeem all mankind. That he sent his son to die in just that way. Um, and... Acts 4.27, um, there the people are praying to the Lord, and they say, For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, when they put Jesus to death, did these people want to put Jesus to death? Yes. They, they were, were free in the sense that God wasn't coercing them against their will, you know, to do this. But had God predestined these very things to take place? Was God guilty of the sin? Was he the author of sin in, in this instance? No. Now, how do we, you know, how do we fit all those things together? You could get, get down into the details, but however you try to explain it, if you try to go beyond These you know simple facts. You you can't explain it in such a way that uh, contradicts one of these statements, one of these truths. You can't sacrifice one for the other. That oh maybe God is the author of sin. Maybe people aren't free. Or maybe God didn't ordain whatsoever comes to pass. You know no all of those are true, Uh, and that's the way Scripture uh, clearly presents it. Uh, Chapter two, Peter says uh, the same thing, uh, where he says. I didn't write down the verse, but yeah, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so God does not do violence to the will of the creatures. He's not the author of sin, but he does ordain every particular thing, even the sins of men. And of course, this is also the great example of how he uses the, the sins of men for good, for his glory, because this was the death of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. Um, The other clarification, which is related here, is the liberty and contingency of second causes are not taken away, but are rather established by God's decree. Uh, He decrees not only the ends, but also the means to the ends, and he uses second causes. He would be the the first cause, you know, but other causation within his creation, um, for one thing to happen and then another thing to happen because of that, he ordains the whole process. And so the, the relation of cause and effect is actually established by his decree rather than being taken away by the fact that he has ordained all things. Now, paragraph two might be a little more obscure about what it's trying to say or what it's saying. God knows what would happen if something happened, but things don't happen because he saw that it would happen because something else happened. In other words, he's most free to decide. It's not like he said, well, I said this would happen, so I guess I have to say that this happens because that follows from the other thing. Uh, no, God knows, you know, if you had done this instead, that's what would have happened. You know, David asks, if I go to this city, and uh, what, what will happen? And God says, well, if you go to that city, they're going to kill you. I was like, all right, I'm not going to go to that city. Um, God, God knows, but when he, uh, he's not bound by his creation uh, to to decree that it would happen in a certain way, um, he doesn't decree that it would come to pass um, based on such conditions. The main point being that God is most free, most sovereign, uh, in uh, basing his plan on his own purpose and his own counsel, uh, not being bound by his creatures, which he himself has made uh, and designed. Any questions there on the, the general decree of, of all things? Yes. i was wondering if it would be helpful to use an illustration by like Joseph's brothers putting them in the pit and then selling them to Egypt. Right. Um, if, if they hadn't done that, then they might not have ended up with Joseph in Egypt. Right. And I'm sure we'll cover some of this again when we look at providence and the working out of this decree. But yes, in, in Joseph, similar to in some ways to the execution of Jesus. It was an evil act that the uh, brothers of Joseph meant for evil. Their their act was a sinful one, but God meant it, you know, the same action. He meant it uh, for good, and it turned out to actually the good even of uh, Joseph's brothers and actually nations, you know, uh, preserving people from famine that God used to work uh, good uh, out of that. Is that kind of what you were Thinking. You were trying to say, what is this and what is that? I mean, the hypothetical. Oh. Sure. Sure, sure. That wasn't part of God's plan. He he, he wanted that to happen. Yes, and God would know what would have happened otherwise, too. Yeah. All right, so that's. We have to keep in mind, God decrees uh, everything. So there's not like some events that are outside of his plan or decree that, you know, he, he all of it comes from him. And now let's look um, more narrowly at, uh, predestination. So I'll read paragraphs three and four by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory. Some men and angels are predestined unto eternal life and others for foreorda- sorry, foreordained to everlasting death. These angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, uh, and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. So God has noticed the terms here: predestinated, uh, predestined some unto everlasting life, and foreordained some to everlasting death. Notice, first of all, that they don't use the same term for both of these things. It's not that he predestined some to life and predestined some to death. Um, it's trying to do justice to the asymmetry. You know what symmetry is? You know, where it looks the same on both sides. You know, if, uh, the, the decree concerning the elect and the decree concerning the reprobate is not symmetrical, is, is not uh, the same. We'll see as we go on. Uh, that is the case, that he chooses some unto salvation and he passes over uh, the rest to judge them for their sins. Um, but there is a decree concerning two groups and the number of those two groups is, uh, is fixed. Um, it's part, like the rest of his decree, it's eternal and unchangeable and particular down to the details. Notice it applies both to men and to angels uh, we don't have as mon- much information about the angels, but there are references, for example, in 1 Timothy 5 to the elect angels, uh, that uh, he has chosen which angels will not, will not fall, and, um, and there would be other angels that, that did fall, uh, that uh, became corrupt. It's a little different than the election of man, because all men fell, and he chose to redeem some out of that sin. And this is for the manifestation of his glory. Really like the rest of his decree. Uh, but a particular, particularly glorious heart. Let's get into more of the details then. Um, reading 5 through 6. This is focusing on the predestination unto everlasting life. Those of mankind that are predestined, predestinated unto life God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them, so or any other thing in the creature, as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are there any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. So concerning predestination unto life, predestinating referring to your destination, you know, beforehand, you know, those who have been destined beforehand unto glory and life, um, concerning that God has chosen people who are fallen in Adam. Again, they weren't actually fallen in Adam yet, but consider it in his eternal decree. Um, he chose people out of his mere grace and has foreordained the effectual means of their salvation, that they would get to that destination by his grace and to the praise of his glorious grace. So God has chosen a people. You know what another word we use for chosen? What's another word we use to refer to God's choice of a people? Election, yes. Election. Election refers to the, the choice of a people to predestine. He, he predestines the, the elect, those whom he has elected, those whom he has chosen and that when was that choice made? Before the foundation of the world, um, which is a way to describe eternity. You know, before time began, before create, created things came into place. Where does that come from? It comes from Scripture. Uh, really, the classic passages on this whole doctrine is Ephesians one and Romans nine. In Ephesians. One, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He doesn't say, even as he chose us because he foresaw that we would be holy and blameless before him, uh, but rather that we were chosen so that we might be holy and blameless before him. The one is the result of the other. And he chose us before creation; he chose us in uh, eternity. It goes on to say, "In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the faith that he foresaw in them." Is that what is that what it says? Do you have that translation? No, no, no. Uh, no it says. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Um, that is the the basis of his election and predestination. And so the election was not based on him looking down the corridor of time and seeing what would happen that, oh, this person's going to believe in me, I better choose that person uh, and, and give them life. Again, remember, even you know, everything is in his plan, uh, first of all, but second of all, uh, it doesn't say that. That's not how scripture explains it. Instead, the very fact that one does believe is because of God's work in their life. It's a result of his election and predestination. Um, Romans 9 makes that clear when it talks about how uh, it's God's, chose and passed over, not on the basis of what uh, they had done. Using examples of Jacob and Esau, for example, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means, for he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so what's, what's the point of this? That we don't have any basis to boast or to, to praise ourselves. Um, that it is uh, of grace that God saves sinners, that but for the grace of God we would be like the rest of mankind uh, and and fallen and unable to save ourselves, Uh, that it is of God's grace and thus to the praise of his grace. And not only has he appointed this destination, but he's also provided the means uh, to that end. And Romans 8 describes this, and really, in, when the confession says this, it's kind of preparing the way for the next third of the confession or so, describing uh, the process of, of salvation. But there at the end of chapter 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, and notice it doesn't say, for those whom he foreknew their works. You know, he foreknew the people, uh, not what they were going to do. He foreknew them. Uh, not that he knew about them, but he knew them. This is referring to his, his election, his choice, his setting his love upon this, these people, and therefore predestinating them unto life. Um, for those whom he foreknew, this is his eternal foreknowledge, his election, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Notice calling comes from predestination. It's his work. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so God carries out this decree uh, by providing the means for salvation, providing it himself, that they would be redeemed in Christ and effectually called by the Spirit. Now, what would you think if the Father uh, elected us from all eternity before the foundation of the world? You know, blessed be the God and Father who has who predestined us, uh, chosen us, elected us, uh, a people to save, but then the Son came and he wants to save every individual on earth would we have a problem right there would be a conflict of the will within within god you know that the, the persons of the trinity would be at odds with each other and you could add the spirit to it is, is the spirit um, uh, on the same page here you know, trying to save the same people uh, but the way scripture presents is that all three members of the trinity are of course one god and and are of one mind in uh, saving uh, the same people that the father gives this people and this is a phrase that John uses often he gives this people to the son they're not saved yet but they're given to the son to save and that he lays his life down for them he calls them by his voice they will answer him he will not let them get out of his hands uh, that he will save them he will raise them up on the last day all that the father gives him he will cast none of them out he will raise them up on the last day there are some who are not of that people, not of that sheep. They don't believe because they're not of that sheep, as he tells the Pharisees. This is John 6 and 10. And so, uh, the father elects them. He gives them to the son to redeem. And then the son sends his spirit to effectually call them into a possession of this salvation. And again, all of God's grace. Yes? So it, it probably is. I, I I see that more of the, the the tension, but essential unity between the human and divine will, uh, because he's th- thinking about death, and and the human nature shrinking back from death, and yet subordinating itself to uh, Christ, subordinating himself to to the Father's will in that instance. So that would be more in the idea of the two natures of Christ in that discussion. But yes, there. Is there a sense in which Father, Son and spirit you know, do not delight in the death of the sinner, for example? you know we could get into some of the complexity of that, but as far as their purpose to save, um, they have the, the same people in mind, the same intention of, of their work? yeah obviously the, the confession piles up terms to talk about the secret council and uh, unsearchable that there are that we're dealing with mysteries that we only know what God has revealed, and we should stick to that, realizing that yeah, it's kind of beyond us in some ways. Right, and everyone would have been saved. Yeah, and, you know, Reformed will be able to say things like, Christ's death is of infinite worth to save everyone, or, or that, you know, Christ died in such a way that whoever believes in him will be saved, and that, that's true. Uh, but as far as who was redeemed by his death, you know, it was those who are redeemed, you know, those whom God intended to redeem. Uh, that is according to his purpose. Paragraph 7, or kind of our fourth point, but paragraph 7 then describes the other side of this uh, decree. The rest of mankind, God was pleased according to, here again, the the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. Again, the, the, the phrases here are important. as trying to do justice to the language of Scripture. That there's a lot more attention on how God has chosen sinners to save and predestined them to glory. Um, and uh, it is a, a passing over, a passing by, and uh, those whom he does not give that grace to and who are therefore uh, predestined unto uh, death and dishonor and wrath for their sin, uh, that it is a just sentence upon them uh, for their sin. It's not an arbitrary or purposeless um, uh, destiny. God, it is his prerogative to extend or withhold mercy according to the unsearchable counsel of his will. We read that in Romans 9. Uh, There is a, a... Scripture does speak of God hardening sinners. um, that instead of giving them grace, he further hardens them um, as he did Pharaoh, for example. Um, But it's not usually using that language to describe the fact that they're sinful to begin with. Although, like we saw in the decree of God, all things, even the first sin, is still within his his plan. But, um, But with respect to Their destiny, he passes by those who uh, have fallen and does not bring them uh, to salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 11, um, let me go ahead and read that. Matthew 11, 25 through 26. Are choosing whom gets this saving knowledge, and it's withheld from others, even from the wise and understanding, because that was his good pleasure, that was his gracious will, uh, unto his glory, that he exalts uh, some and, and uh, also withholds these things uh, from others, justly for their sins, uh, predestines them unto uh, to dishonor and wrath. Romans 9 speaks of some as, as vessels of wrath that God uses uh, to, to display his power, his justice. And um, it is his right. Who are we, uh, the clay, to answer back to the potter? Why have you uh, made us this way? And it should instead humble us to know that we also uh, were deserving of the same judgment, and of his grace he gives this grace and he gives this grace to sinners who are yet still in their sins that are yet to be called to salvation uh, and that this is still something being carried out uh, to this day any questions on this point well let's get to the last paragraph here number eight The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel this is an important note about the use of this doctrine. It is a high mystery. We're talking about the eternal decree of God. This is something uh, kind of above us, and yet God has uh, given us information about it in his word. But it's very possible to misuse things that are true, uh, to receive truths and, and then misuse them, to try to deduce things that uh, do not necessarily uh, follow from them, or to uh, begin to tell ourselves things that are are not helpful you know how do you know that you're elect do you just think about it really hard and try to discern if if you're elect or not no you know we you you, you election manifests itself through effectual calling through faith and repentance in the gospel uh, as god brings people to faith um is, is it, do you think, well, God has his people out there and therefore I don't need to evangelize or anything because it's going to happen regardless? No, that's not what scripture deduces from this fact. In fact, it's the opposite. God has his people out there who are yet in sin and he has commissioned his church to be the instrument of his decree to carry this out, to bring them to faith. God uses instruments as well. You know, what ought you to do? Well, you don't know his secret decree of election. That's not what he has given to direct your actions. Uh, what he's given you is, uh, is his revealed will, the, the things in scripture that he tells you to do, to repent, to believe. Um, he doesn't tell you, be elected. <laughs> you know, He tells you to respond to the gospel in Jesus Christ and to place your faith in him. And having believed, having repented, to therefore not give yourself credit for doing it, but rather to give God glory uh, that he has done this uh, because of his decree, it, from the certainty of their effectual vocation. That's not talking about your vocation as a carpenter or a, uh, you know what, whatever your vocation is. It's talking about your calling unto salvation. You know, from that being called to faith and repentance, you might be assured of your eternal election and have that uh, humility, have that a consolation that God will complete the work that He has begun. Um, that you have praise and reverence unto God and admiration of God, that these are, are and ought to be the fruits of this doctrine as it's handled with care and prudence, that we don't get ahead of ourselves uh, in handling this high mystery. Yes. Right, because that's what he called us unto. Yeah. Um, and the, the the point is that it is of grace and that we have no grounds for, for boasting. Uh, or as Paul concludes his discussion in Romans, after discussing at length that God carrying out his decrees of uh, election and other things... Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid, Uh, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. Uh, We should attend to the word that he has given us, act upon that, uh, and then give God the glory. Uh, for the work that he has done in showing mercy and compassion uh, to those who had no right. Uh, We we had not given unto him that we should be repaid, uh, but rather should give glory to him uh, because of his great gift. All right, so this is concerning the decree of God. Next week we'll look at chapter 4 and talk about how he began to carry out this decree. uh, First in the work of creation. And we'll look at providence and redemption, um, but beginning next week with uh, creation. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy, your good purpose, that you have set your love upon us not for good things that we have done, uh, but rather because of your great mercy and compassion and grace. Uh, we glorify you, therefore and the riches of your uh, power and goodness. We pray that you would indeed work powerfully to save the lost, that you would draw in uh, the elect, those whom you have chosen, that they would uh, be an abundant multitude, that you would fill your church with them, that you would carry out your good and wise plan in all things uh, from the what we see as small and insignificant to the great uh, and uh, deeds and events that take place, that you would uh, comfort us by them to show us uh, your goodness, but to grant us uh, faith in your wisdom and power and goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.